sermon passage this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through, Lord, through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress, transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What's the will of God for my life? If you're a Christian, maybe you've asked that question before. You've uh, wanted to know, well, what to do next? What path to take? What decision to make? Uh, now, usually when Christians ask that question, they're wanting to know things like, well, what, does, what career does God want me to pursue? Uh, who does God want me to marry? Does God want me to marry? Where does God want me to live? Does God want me to be a missionary? And these are good questions. However, the Bible doesn't really give us a lot of specifics about where to live or who to marry or where to work. Yet, it is crystal clear about one thing. Look at verse 3 of our passage this morning. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. If you've ever wondered what God's will for your life is, well, this is it. He wants your sanctification, uh, which is another word for holiness. God wants us to be holy. And there's something very profound about this, isn't there? God is more concerned about who we are than what we do. Now, of course, who we are will affect what we do, as we'll see in a moment. But God is in the business of heart transformation, not just behavior modification. He wants us to be holy. This is his will for your life and mine. Why? Because he is holy. And I wonder what what your initial response to that is. You know, maybe you're a little bit disappointed. Maybe your heart sank a little bit when you heard those words. You were hoping that God actually had bigger plans for your life than this. Oh, great. God wants me to be Ned Flanders. You know, maybe when you think about holiness, you think about stuffy religious people who don't really know how to have fun. You think about holiness as something that actually robs people of joy and happiness. And what is holiness anyway? You know, it's one of those religious words that we should probably define. Uh, maybe think about holiness like a magnet. Okay, so a magnet has both a negative and a positive charge. It's either repelled by something or it's attracted to something. And holiness is a little bit like that. Holiness has a negative and a positive charge, so to speak. Negatively, holiness is repelled by sin. Holiness hates sin. Holiness means to be set apart from sin. Now, that might sound boring to you. However, sin is actually the thing that brings pain and misery to the world. Although sin feels good at first, it always brings destruction 
and death. But holiness is more than this because holiness has a positive charge as well. Positively, holiness means to be set apart for God. It means to be devoted to God, to be attracted to God, to have a passion for God's glory and honor. And this is God's will for his people. He wants us to be holy. Now, of course, holy people will live holy lives. Who we are will affect what we do. And so holiness is very practical. It applies to every area of our lives. It affects the way we play sports, the way we parent our kids, the way we, we work in the office, the way we treat our spouse. However, Paul decides to zero in on a very specific area of holiness in our passage. He wants us to be holy people in the area of sex. Now, we're going to get there, but before we do, let's just look at verses 1 and 2 again of our passage. Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So this marks a transition in the letter. Paul's going to spend the next two weeks, oh, sorry, the next two chapters rather, giving final instructions to the church. And notice the things that Paul is about to say are not his personal opinion. They're instructions given in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. They come with the authority of the Lord. So to dismiss what Paul's about to say is actually to dismiss not Paul, but it's to dismiss Jesus. Also, notice that Paul wants to urge the Thessalonians to live in a way that pleases God. So if you're a Christian, did you know that you can please God? This is different from trying to earn God's love or his approval. There's actually nothing we can do to earn God's love. The message of the gospel is that God loved us when we were his enemies. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So since we didn't earn God's love, there's nothing we can do to lose his love. His love is constant. It doesn't ebb and flow based on our moral performance. However, that doesn't mean that we can't please God. So let me use an imperfect human illustration. I love my kids. There's nothing that they can do to lose my love. They, they never have to wake up in the morning wondering whether their place in the family is secure or not. Their status as my daughter and my son is fixed. However, they can do things to please or displease me. They can fill my heart with pride or they can fill it with grief. And in, in a similar way, as Christians, our status as God's children is secure and fixed. His love for us is never under threat. Yet, we can live in a way that either pleases him or displeases him, either either fills his heart with pride, so to speak, or fills his heart with grief. And actually, this is one of the key motivations for living a holy life. Apart from the gospel, we either don't care about pleasing God, or we try and earn God's love through our moral performance. However, the gospel changes everything, doesn't it? Because the gospel tells us that we're far more sinful than we ever imagined, yet we're far more loved than we ever dreamed. And this frees us from trying to earn God's approval, yet it motivates us to want to please God. In other words, we love because he first loved us. 
And so Paul wants the Thessalonians to please God. Yet also notice the Thessalonians are actually living a life pleasing to God, he says in verse 1. Yet he urges them to do so more and more. In other words, he wants this church to keep on growing, to keep pressing on, to not get lazy or complacent. To use an illustration from one of my pastor friends, if the Christian life is like an airplane, we're meant to keep on ascending and ascending and ascending. We never hit cruising altitude in the Christian life. We never go into autopilot mode. Finally, what, much of what Paul is about to say here isn't completely new information. Did you see that? He says in verse 1 that the Thessalonians have already received from Paul how they ought to walk and to please God. He says in verse 2 that they already know what instructions they've been given. In other words, much of the Christian life is being reminded of things that we already know. We're prone to forget. We have a terrible case of spiritual amnesia. And so if you've heard the sermon before on this topic, don't go to sleep. Because it seems like the Apostle Paul and the Lord himself feels like we need to hear these things again. So Paul continues in verse 3 there. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The specific area of holiness Paul has in mind here is sexual purity. He wants the church to abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek term Paul uses there is the word porneia. It was an all-encompassing term that referred to every and any kind of sexual sin. So it included lustful thoughts, inappropriate words, emotional affairs. It included sexual abuse, whether inside or outside of marriage. Included fornication, uh, sorry, not fornication, that's not a word, fornication <laughs> and homosexuality. According to the Bible, all sexual, activ sexual activity is meant to be between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Anything else is porneia. And Paul tells the church to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, Paul's instructions here are extremely controversial, aren't they, in our day and age? The idea that sex is reserved for a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. And besides, why does God care who we sleep with? I mean, doesn't he have more important things to concern himself with, like making galaxies or painting sunsets or stopping AI from becoming self-aware? I mean, why, why is he so concerned about this? The atheist Sam Harris puts it bluntly. He says this, he says, you, by, by which he means you Christians, believe that your religious concerns about sex in all their tiresome immensity have something to do with morality. Your principal concern appears to be that the creator of the universe will take offense at something people do while naked. This prudery of yours contributes daily to the surplus of human misery. Maybe you sympathize with his statement. Why does God care about this issue? Is he just being a bit of a cosmic killjoy? You don't need me to tell you that Paul's words are controversial. However, and I think this is important to understand, Paul's words were even more controversial in the first century. The idea of sexual purity would have been a hard sell to people in Thessalonica. 
So the Greco-Roman world was a very promiscuous culture. And Thessalonica in particular was, had a bit of a reputation for its sexual laxity. Sex outside of marriage was just a normal part of everyday life. It was even part of the religious scene. For example, using temple prostitutes was a common way to participate in pagan worship. In the ancient world, men were extremely promiscuous. A man wasn't expected to limit himself to one sexual partner. So it was, it was common for a man to have a wife. The wife would give him kids and manage the household. And she was expected to be faithful to her husband, yet he wasn't expected to do the same. He likely had a mistress. The mistress would provide him with intellectual companionship and sexual enjoyment. The husband might also have a concubine. This was usually a slave who was treated like a piece of property. And finally, he was very free to go and visit prostitutes. In other words, the average man was having sex with three or four women, yet was responsible for none of them. Now, as you can imagine, such a culture was incredibly demeaning to and oppressive for women. There was a lot of neglect and exploitation and abuse. Along with this, homosexuality was widely practiced. It was common for married men to sleep with male prostitutes or male slaves. Unlike today, people didn't think about homosexuality as an identity. It was simply a behavior, and it usually involved men in power using subordinates for their pleasure. And the age of a person wasn't really an issue either. And that was the scene, this was the scene in Thessalonica. This was the, the cultural water that these new Christians were swimming in. Pornea was normal. Sexual purity was strange. And so feel the force of Paul's words here. His command to abstain from sexual immorality couldn't have been more jolting. And Paul gives them four reasons to abstain from sexual sin in our passage. And I think these reasons apply to us too. So the first one is this. Because we know God, Christians are countercultural. Because we know God, Christians are countercultural. Look at verses four to five. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The phrase to control his own body there is a little tricky to interpret. You might notice a footnote in your Bible. The Greek literally says to possess his own vessel. And some commentators think that Paul is telling the men in the church to acquire or possess a wife for themselves. That's how he wants them to abstain from sexual immorality. However, I'm not sure that's the best translation. Uh, simply having a wife doesn't equal sexual purity. There are plenty of marriages rife with sexual sin. That was true in Paul's day. It's also true in ours. Also, calling a wife her husband's vessel seems a little bit demeaning and dehumanizing. We don't actually have any examples in the Bible of a wife being referred to as her husband's vessel. In fact, vessel was more commonly used as a metaphor for a person's body. And I think our, transla our translation actually gets it right. That, that seems to fit better with the context. Uh, so compare verses four, verse 4 with verse 5. The Gentiles, verse 5, those who do not know God, Paul says, well, they're controlled by lust. 
They're mastered by their passions. They're enslaved by their desires. However, the Thessalonians do know God. Therefore, they should live differently. They should be set apart. They're no longer enslaved to the passion of lust. They should exercise self-control. The men in that culture were particularly good at controlling other people's bodies. Yet Paul tells them to control their own bodies and to do so in holiness instead of impurity, in honor instead of shame. There's a principle here that we can easily miss. Those who know God will approach sex differently than those who don't know God. In other words, we we can't make the secular world our standard when it comes to sex. In every age and place, the Christian sexual ethic has always been, has always challenged the assumptions of the culture. It's always been offensive. It's always been seen as a threat to the status quo. Here's what this means practically. If If we have the same sexual ethic as our unbelieving friends, Something should give, us cause, should give us pause. If our view of sex aligns with the music and movies of pop culture, we're probably off base. If our sexual morals sync up perfectly with people who don't know God, we should be concerned because holiness means we're different. It means we're set apart. I think this is especially important for young people to hear. The Bible says sex is to be between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. And look, that sounds countercultural today, but it's always been countercultural. So if you believe and if you believe that, don't be surprised if people think you're weird. Don't be shocked if if people find your beliefs repulsive. In fact, and I think this is important, don't be dismayed if you find the Bible offensive on this issue. Even if you are a Christian, you've grown up in a world that doesn't know God. You've been swimming in these cultural waters. You've been impacted by movies and music and social media and friends. Added to all this, you have your own sinful inclinations. So don't be surprised if God says things about sex that you don't like. We should actually expect the Bible to challenge us. We should anticipate the Bible disagreeing with us on certain issues. Think of it this way. If we read the Bible and we found that God agreed with all of our morality and opinions, if he affirmed all of our desires and feelings, if we came away from the Bible thinking, hey, I was right about everything, we should probably be suspicious of ourselves. It makes sense that the perfect, infinite God would actually challenge imperfect, finite people So don't be alarmed if you struggle with what the Bible says on this issue. But if you are a Christian, if you've been saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you want to please God, trust what he says over your own wisdom and and feelings. Trust his word over the words that you hear on the internet. Ask the Lord to grow you in holiness in this area, to align your thoughts and feelings with his I mean, isn't this what the Thessalonians would have had to do? I'm sure Paul's words would have been extremely jarring to them. This was a completely new way to think about sex. Abstaining from promiscuity was not a virtue in the ancient world. 
controlling one's body instead of giving into sexual desires was not expected in that society. I think the shock of this is lost on us a bit because most of us are grown up in a world shaped by Christian values. We often don't even realize how much our own sexual ethics are, are rooted in Christianity. For example, if you believe that husbands should be faithful to their wives, you have Christianity to thank. If you believe all women should be treated equally, with dignity, and shouldn't be objectified for the sake of a man's sexual pleasure, you have Christianity to thank. Because those values were not self-evident in the Greco-Roman world. And they're not actually self-evident in every culture today. The reason our culture has those values is because it's been influenced by Christianity. Tom Holland is one of the world's foremost historians. He's not a Christian. However, he argues that the central values of modern Western secular culture, so our culture, have actually come from Christianity. So in an interview, he said the following thing. He said, why do people take for granted that powerful men do not have the right to use their social inferiors in a sexual manner? A Roman man had the right to sexually use anyone who was subordinate to him. Slaves, social inferiors. Now, Christianity radically, radically changes that. What Paul does is to say that there can only be one way, one proper way of having a sexual relationship, and that is you have to have a marriage that's monogamous. The scale of this transformation cannot be overemphasized. This is a, a, a non-Christian saying this. The scale of this transformation cannot be overemphasized. And it's something that offers to women a dignity that no previous sexual dispensation had offered. And over the course of the first centuries of Christianity, this understanding, understanding of sex eats like a kind of acid through the understanding that the Romans previously had of how sex operates. And we could go on, but Holland goes on to basically say, this transformation carries all the way up to our modern day. Do you see his point? He's saying, we just take for granted that powerful men can't treat women however they want. But this, Holland argues, is because of Christianity. Christianity radically changed the way people think about sex. It literally, to use Holland's phrase, remade the world. In many ways, Christianity was the first sexual revolution. It's helpful to get this perspective on history because we live in a time when certain Christian values are being abandoned. Many people no longer believe that sex should be reserved for a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. And, and people call this progressive. However, historically speaking, it's, it's more regressive. It, it's going back to the oppressive sexual mores of the ancient world. In other words, we're going back, not forward. But this shouldn't surprise us. Because in a world that doesn't know God, sin is normal and holiness is strange. However, as those who do know God, we're called to be countercultural. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you, are you controlling your body in holiness and honor? Are you cultivating a habit of saying no to sexual sin and temptation? Are you using your body in ways that are holy and honorable? Are you being mastered by the passion of lust? Paul would remind you, be countercultural. Why? Well, because you know God. Secondly, sexual immorality wrongs others. 
That's my longest point. Secondly, sexual immorality wrongs others. We like to think of sex as a private matter. However, sexual sin always harms people. That's Paul's point in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Sexual immorality wrongs others. As Christians, we're part of the same body. And so our sin affects one another. My sin affects you and your sin affects me. Sexual sin always also wrongs our spouse or our future spouse. It wrongs our children. It wrongs the person that we sin with. It wrongs their family. In other words, sexual sin is never simply a private matter. I think this helps us with Sam Harris's criticism. Why does the creator of the universe take offense at something that people do while naked? Part of the answer is that God actually cares about people. Sexual sin harms others. It harms individuals, families, churches, and societies. Now look, maybe there's an objection in your mind at this point. What about situations with two consenting adults who love one another? Who cares if they're not married? Who cares if they're the same gender? Nobody's getting hurt. Well, the Bible would argue that someone always gets hurt. Whenever sex is taken out of marriage between a man and a woman, it always causes damage. It causes damage to people's physical health, mental health, spiritual health. It damages families, churches, societies. The Bible shows us this, but so does medical science and sociology and history. In fact, if you were being honest, I think your own exper personal experience would show you this too. You, I think deep down we all know that sexual sin brings destruction. Some of us know that all too well. For some of us, our sexual sin has brought, has brought harm to ourselves. It's brought harm to the people that we love and care about. For some of us, we've been the victim of other people's sexual sin. And so we just know how devastating this can be. It's important to see here that God is not actually calling us to a lesser view of sex. He's not trying to limit our fun or enjoyment. He designed sex and he knows how it's supposed to work. The Bible actually has a high view of sex. It recognizes the power of sex and the damage it can do when we use it however we please. So that's the second reason to abstain. Sexual sin wrongs others. Thirdly, sexual immorality will be punished. Sexual immorality will be punished. Look again at verse 6. Paul says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The Lord is an avenger. If you're a Marvel fan, this is your favorite verse. An avenger is someone who exacts punishment in return for wrong. The Bible's just so clear on this. Sexual sin leads to God's judgment. Let's just look at three examples. Hebrews 13, verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, we read this earlier. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolatrous, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's why it's not loving to tell people things like love is love. It's not affirming. It's not loving to affirm every sexual choice. It's not loving to encourage people to follow their heart or do whatever makes them happy. Because God takes sexual sin seriously. Again, notice Paul is reminding the Thessalonians of something that they, they actually already know. He says there, they've already been solemnly warned about this. But sin is just so deceitful, isn't it? It lies to us. It tells us in that moment that God doesn't actually care about those lustful fantasies. It doesn't care about, he doesn't care about the flirting at the office or those late night internet searches. God actually doesn't care about what you do with your body or who you do it with. And that's why it's so important that we go back to the Bible because the Bible is clear on this and it tells us the truth in love. It solemnly warns us God is an avenger in all these things. Therefore, abstain from sexual immorality. Fourthly and finally, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Look at verses seven to eight. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's important to see that we've actually been called to something better God has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We're not destined for impurity, but holiness. You know, there's a sense in which just sexual sin is beneath a Christian. It's not fitting for those who are in Christ. It's inappropriate for a child of God. And Paul reminds us here that this isn't his personal opinion. This isn't Paul's sexual ethic. He says that whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. And then notice what he says right at the end. He says, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We, we can't see it in English, but the emphasis in the Greek there is on the holy character of the Spirit. So imagine the word holy being underlined in your Bible. The presence of the Holy Spirit means sexual immorality has no place in the life of the Christian. Again, Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians, which we, read, which we read earlier. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other person, every, sorry, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why would we desecrate God's temple? Why would we grieve the Holy Spirit? I mean, isn't this a great motivation to pursue sexual holiness? But what if you feel too weak? What if the temptation seems too strong? Well, Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And this is actually where the power comes to fight sexual sin. God hasn't called us to do something that we can't do. He's actually equipped us with everything we need in this battle. You know, sometimes we just feel like sin, sexual sin in particular, is just too powerful, and we just lose hope of ever changing. But we have the, we have the Spirit of God, and this means that we are already holy. Think about it. 
God's will is our holiness, but there's a sense in which we are already holy. We have the Holy Spirit. We've already been set apart. Theologians call this definitive sanctification. We have new identities as God's holy people. Now it's a case of increasingly becoming who we are already in Jesus. We are holy, therefore we should be holy. And the Spirit helps us in this endeavor. Theologians call this progressive sanctification. Paul tells us to control our bodies. How are we to do that? Well, the Spirit helps us. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Holiness isn't something that we conjure up in our own strength. We put sin to death by the Spirit, Romans 8, 13. Christian, you're not a hopeless case. You are in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. God has called you in holiness. So be who he's called you to be. This is God's will for your life. But what if you've messed up in this area? What if you haven't abstained from sexual immorality? What if you haven't controlled your body in holiness and honor? What if you've sinned against yourself and others? What if you've grieved the Holy Spirit who lives in you? Well, look, let me be clear about something. We're all sexual sinners. We've all been controlled by the passions of lust. We've all transgressed and wronged one another in this area. The specifics of our sexual sin might be different, but none of us have reached the end of our sanctification, have we? But the good news is that we're not saved by our holiness. We've been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death on the cross has paid for all of our sin. So we can bring our sexual sin to Jesus. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. His grace is greater than our sin. And so if you feel full of impurity this morning, then come to Christ. He offers grace and forgiveness for anyone who wants it. It doesn't matter what you've done or how many times you've done it. If you turn away from your sin and come to Jesus, he will lavish you with his mercy. He loves nothing more to, than to give grace to those who least deserve it. And that applies to anyone. Friend, if, you've, if you're here this morning, if you've never received God's forgiveness in Christ, well, now's the time. God is calling you to turn from your sin and come to Jesus because a day is coming when God will judge every impure thought, word, and deed. Let me solemnly warn you, God is an avenger in all these things. Yet Jesus has taken the punishment for the sins of his people. His death is sufficient to save you if you'll come to him. You don't have to clean up your act before he'll have you. You don't have to be holy before he'll save you. You simply have to believe that you are a sinner who's in desperate need of a savior and to trust that Jesus alone is that savior. So come to Christ this morning. Finally, what if you're here today and you're, you are actually pleasing God in this area? You are abstaining from sexual immorality. You are controlling your body in holiness and honor. What if you are not actually transgressing and wronging people in this area? I'm not saying you're sinless, but on the whole, by God's grace, you are pursuing holiness. You're growing in sexual purity. Well, praise God. I'm so thankful to the Lord for the many people in our church, men and women who are fighting sexual sin. It's one of the joys, my personal joys, of being involved in the Thursday men's group. If that describes you, what would Paul say to you? Well, look again at verse one. He says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us 
how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You know, don't take your foot off the gas. Don't hit cruise control. Stay alert because the, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Keep ascending and ascending and ascending to greater heights of sexual purity and joy. Let the pleasure of God motivate you to abstain from sexual sin and pursue holiness. Because let's be honest, doesn't sexual sin just make us miserable? Yes, it offers a temporary pleasure, yet the pleasure doesn't last. But the shame does. The misery lingers. But God has called us to something better. His will is our sanctification. And so let's live holy lives. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your holiness. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, you have made us holy. You've broken the power of sin in our lives and given us your Holy Spirit. Would you help us to live holy lives, to live out our true identity as holy people? Help us to abstain from sexual immorality, to control our bodies in holiness and honor, to love instead of wrong one another, to take sexual sin seriously, knowing that you are an avenger in all these things. And we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you that his death is sufficient to pay for all our sexual sin. And so as we take the Lord's Supper together, we trust in Christ afresh this morning, trusting his blood to cleanse us from every impurity. And we pray all these things for your glory and our joy. Amen.